It's great to see you all. I, I realized yesterday when I woke up that I didn't feel um, great and I did the whole day. And then uh, by the time I got home last night, I just had nothing. And it was way too late to call an audible and I was excited about starting this series. And so we pushed through at nine and it went okay. If you're listening to the podcast, I'm sorry that it sounds like this, um, but we're so glad you're here. We're starting a series today on the gospel of Mark. And I just wanna give you a bit of where we're going. Um, so today is going to be an introduction. So today we're gonna talk a little bit about what scholars think about the gospel of Mark, and we'll wind up talking a bit about what that might mean, what this gospel might mean for us. Then next, starting next week, we're going to take a chapter a week. I'm, going to, I'm not going to read you the whole chapter and talk about all of it. We'll summarize the chapter, and I'm going to pick a story, a theme, an arc, or something in the chapter to do a sermon on, and we'll do that up through Palm Sunday. We'll have some online stuff, some videos and such available during Holy Week for chapters 12, 13, 14, 15. And then we'll do chapter 16 on Easter, which is the resurrection story. So that's where we're going. Um, today's introduction will not be like a sitcom. And I don't mean it won't be funny. I hope you laugh at times. What I mean is, you know what happens in a sitcom? You have 22 minutes of action, 30 with commercials. And what happens is something happens, it's a catastrophe, a crisis, and then you solve it by the end. That's not going to be today. I'm going to leave you hanging today um, intentionally. Uh, so if you want to know, for, well, I'm going to talk about what the good news is. I'm not going to tell you. Um, but if you want to know what the good news is, you have to come back next week and then each subsequent week through Easter. Um, so I don't know if you had plans, cancel them. Uh, you're going to be here or watching online or listening to the podcast. Um, and I want to begin today by just setting Mark in its historical context and a little bit in our historical context. So how many of you remember where you were on September 11th, 2001? Most of us remember where we were. Let me tell you where I was. I was a junior in college at Eastern Kentucky University. Um, I was uh, not a great student. In my master's program, I had a 4.0. That is not the case with undergrad. I discovered fun when I went away to college, and my grades suffered. And so I was taking an anatomy physiology class because I needed a science elective and thought that would be a good choice. Um, it, it wasn't going well let's just say. And so one morning I, I woke up and decided to actually go to class on September 11th, 2001. And on my way to class, I stopped at a vending machine and got the breakfast of champions, which was a honey bun and a Mountain Dew, um, which now thinking about that just makes me like my whole day's over at that point. Um, I went into class and I sat down. I was late. It started at eight. It was like 8.30 or something when I finally decided to show up. And some people over here, the professors lecturing, it was a big class, you know, a couple hundred people. They had no idea what we were doing. A couple people over here, I hear them talking about some room and I watched 9-11 unfold. And I think at the moment, I knew everything was changing. I just didn't know how drastic that would be. But 9-11 was this moment that absolutely reshaped our reality. As, not, not only as Americans, it reshaped the reality of the world. If you try to describe to someone who wasn't alive at 9-11, and you try to describe to them what the world was like before that, it was wildly different, wasn't it? Anybody fly before 9-11? You get on an airplane pre-9-11? Do you remember how you used to just be able to walk back to the gate with people? and say goodbye, like Hollywood style, give them a kiss, send them on the airplane. You remember this? And now what happens when you go to airport? I mean, if you've been to BNA lately, there's a whole new security apparatus where you walk in, it's hands up, they send this thing, we have no idea what this is doing to us. It's, this, it's just happening. Um, and then you come out, they either pat you down or you don't. It's just a whole different world. And I think even though we didn't know maybe, you know, what was going to happen or how the world was going to be reshaped or changed, 
the world was absolutely changed. And not just the sense of like, it's more difficult to fly on an airplane now. And if you remember that day, at least I just felt a, uh, this intense dread and terror, this fear, because we didn't know. Like, is something else going to happen? Is another shoe going to fall? What else is going to... And then people started making up stuff that was going to happen. And I remember being in my room and get a phone call on my dorm phone. And I pick it up and it's somebody who's asking me if Jesus is coming back. And I was like, yeah, right now. Like, it was utterly terrifying. We just didn't know. Um, not only did it change our lives and how we do things, but it changed our sense of safety. It changed our sense of expectation. Like we knew what every day was going to be, and now we didn't know what every day was going to be. And the reason I'm talking about 9-11 in January is because I, I think for us to understand the gospel of Mark, we have to understand that this what Mark's community was experiencing when he wrote this gospel was their version of 9-11 on steroids. It was even worse, if that's possible. And so as we dive into Mark, we have to understand that for Mark, his audience and whoever, whoever he was, they had just experienced a cataclysm. Life as they know it ended, and it would never, ever, ever be the same again. So, Let's begin to talk about this person and this text, and then we'll ask some, some, have to share some thoughts that maybe ask some questions about us. So first of all, who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Like maybe the answer. And by the way, technically, I think any of the people who wrote the Gospels, if we call it the Gospel of so-and-so, they would be deeply offended because they would say, it's not our Gospel, it's the Gospel according to me, which means we're getting Mark's lens on the Gospel, Matthew's lens on the Jesus story, Luke's lens, John's lens. Um, so who wrote Mark, a guy named Mark? Actually, we don't think so. For a long time, because of some writings of some second, second, third century church fathers, there was this idea that Mark was written by a guy named John Mark, who in the book of Acts travels with Paul and uh, Barnabas. Now, eventually Paul and Barnabas break up. The band splits because of John Mark. Because at one point, Mark was with them and bailed on them. And then he wants to come back and Barnabas is like, let's bring him back. And Paul's like, over my dead body. And so they end up splitting. And so people have uh, believed that this John Mark, who's in the book of Acts, went to Rome, connected with a guy named Simon Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples, one of the central disciples. And that Peter, he followed Peter around, listened to his sermons, and Mark's like taking really good notes. And so what you have in the gospel of Mark is, the story of Jesus, according to Mark, but really according to Peter. Now, what happened when, um, during the Enlightenment period, when we started as humans, as humans, we started realizing that we didn't understand the ancient world very well because there's all sorts of um, things we didn't know, like literary stuff, right? So they started doing things like source criticism and redaction criticism, and they started realizing that these texts are way more complicated. They're not as straightforward as we thought they were. And so scholars begin to realize it doesn't seem like we actually don't know who wrote any of the Gospels. What we can say is none of them were actual eyewitnesses, even though that's how they've been portrayed. Like these are people who are there taking notes. Here's what we think. Whoever wrote Mark, and it's an unnamed, all of them are anonymous. None of them like right at the beginning, it didn't say according to Mark until later. And then people started putting that on manuscripts. In, in the beginning, that wasn't the case. What we have is Mark was likely written first of the four canonical gospels. And then Matthew wrote, and Matthew copied like 90% of Mark and gave Mark no credit. 
just basically said, look what I came up with. <laughs> Matthew added some stuff. But the reality is he copied most of Mark. Then scholars, are, some scholars say there was this document called Q, which was just sayings of Jesus, and Matthew and Luke both used it. I kind of don't know about that anymore. I think Matthew wrote, used Mark, then Luke came along later and used Matthew, and maybe Mark, but definitely Matthew. Um, and then you have John, who just was doing John's own thing, but likely knew at least some of the Matthew, Mark, Luke situation. And so that's, that's how we got the Gospels, right? They, they didn't just like, nobody sat down and thought they were writing scripture. They were just telling a story of Jesus. And so what scholars, actually, there's this, this new thread in scholarship that says, we don't think Mark, actually, whoever wrote Mark knew Simon Peter. We actually think that whoever wrote Mark was connected in some way to Paul. Because if you take 1 Corinthians and you lay certain sections of it over Mark, it seems like that's where Mark got the deal. Right, so it seems like Mark was using Paul as a source and some other stuff as a source, and Mark is telling the story of Jesus. Are we tracking so far? Are you bored yet? Just wait. <laughs> so when we say a gospel, like the gospel according to Mark, what is a gospel? Most of my upbringing, we were told a gospel is a biography. Right, The gospels are biographies of Jesus. They're telling us about the life of Jesus like a biography would tell you about someone's life. Um, but that's not actually the case. So when Mark begins, Jesus, we meet Jesus as a fully grown adult being baptized in the desert. Uh, we, if Matthew and Luke had not written, we would not have known anything about Christmas. And retailers would have remained in the red forever. <laughs> there would have been no fights over big screen TVs. So maybe we could make a case Matthew and Luke messed everything up. Um, but in the beginning, we don't, and, and when Mark, there's surely things about Jesus's life that Mark doesn't tell us, that none of the gospels tell us. John even makes this statement like, if I told you everything about Jesus, there's not enough books in the world to hold the information. All right, so there's this idea that, um, that these stories, these gospels, they're not biographies. The, the goal of them is not to tell you about the life of Jesus and everything Jesus said and did. A gospel is a proclamation about Jesus. And that's different, right? It's not saying, here's the life of Jesus and all of its details, minutia. Like there's this one day, Jesus ate this for breakfast. It's saying, this is who Jesus is for us. And I'm going to do everything I do in this story to make you see that. One of the things I appreciate about the Gospel of John is at the end, in John 20, after everything, John goes, um, I could have told you more, but I told you all of this because I wanted you to believe. It's pretty nice when somebody's just honest with you, right? Do you know what word you use for that? This is gonna make some of you feel icky right away, but I promise you it's not a negative term, really. Propaganda. The gospels are propaganda because the word propaganda simply means communication to persuade. Now, there's some propaganda that is intent to deceive, and to, but that's not what's, Mark, Mark is telling the story of Jesus with the intent of persuading us to trust it to see it, to understand it, to enter into it. So that's what a gospel is. That's what really Paul's letters are. They're propaganda. They're propaganda intended to convince, to persuade, to invite, to, to, to maybe get our ears to perk up and to ask really good questions and to perhaps possibly believe and trust something is going on here. A gospel also, by the way, um, gospel, the word gospel itself simply means good news. It's the word in Greek, euangelion. It's where we get the word evangelical. You get to decide whether or not it still means good news. 
But the word gospel in the ancient world simply meant good news. But it was not just like, like good news, I just saved a bunch of money on our car insurance, um, which is great news, right? But not quite the same good news. This word actually was not a religious word. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't separate religion, politics, and economics. We'll talk more about that soon. But the reality is, it wasn't primarily a religious word. It wasn't like, I got something to tell you. Believe these six things and everything is all right. Believe these things, do this, you know, sign off on this, and you're going to go to heaven when you die. That's not gospel. Gospel in the ancient world was a term used to describe an event. So if a new emperor, Roman emperor, took the throne, they would announce a UN galeon. We have a new leader. If a Roman uh, Caesar, emperor, won a decisive victory in battle, they would announce that victory by calling it UN Galeon. And we see this really clearly in the life of a guy named Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor. Before he was Augustus, his name was Octavian, and he essentially won a Roman civil war against Mark Antony and Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> and after he defeated Mark Antony and Elizabeth Taylor, also known as Cleopatra, um, in around the year 42 BCE, uh, after he won that, uh, people began to talk about, he ended up taking on a sort of, in the East especially, a godlike status. He's Caesar Augustus. Essentially, Augustus means one who is to be worshipped. And when they started talking about his victory, they started saying things like, the entire world was disintegrating, and then Augustus stepped in and brought peace. They actually have found inscriptions in places like Turkey where they use specific language to describe Augustus. I'm not going to read the whole inscription to you because it's really long. I just want to give you some of the language that's in it. They call, in this inscription from Prien in Turkey, uh, they call Caesar Savior. When you hear the word Savior, do you think of that as a religious term or a political term? It's both in the ancient world because there was a Caesar cult, but the reality is when they use this term, they are not using it solely because they didn't separate religion and politics. This is a political term. They talk about Caesar as the one who brought peace on earth. They talk about Caesar who by his epiphany, they describe his birth as an epiphany. Today on the Christian calendar is the day of epiphany where Christ is presented to the world. Christians, early Jesus followers, were ripping off language that was a spoken, written, and applied to the Caesars and they're grabbing that language and saying, if we want to describe who Jesus is in this particular context, how do we do it? Do we go make up new words? Or do we take words that people know are loaded with meaning and treasonously apply them to this Jesus story? And they describe his birth and his, the announcement of his victory as UN Galeon, as good news over and over and over again. Gospel in the ancient world was not a, hey, you have to believe these things. Gospel wasn't. You may not even believe that Caesar, but Caesar won, right? It is an announcement. It is like something on the front page of a newspaper that's celebrating victory. So if that's what a gospel is, not primarily something that is like believe, 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 but an announcement, what does it mean for Mark to tell the story of Jesus and for it to be called this? Not primarily like, okay, look through this gospel and find the steps that will take you to heaven when you die, but listen to this good news and adjust your life accordingly. 
Live as if the battle has been won. Live as if there's a new ruler on the throne. Live as if this were true because it is. That's what it meant in the Roman world. Now, there are three contexts for Mark I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the context of Jesus, which was not Mark's. Um, Mark is writing about Jesus, so we have to know Jesus' context. Then I want to talk about the context that Mark wrote in. And then I want to ask or talk about what our context is and how Mark meets us in that context. So Jesus's context is in the 20s to 30s. Um, That's not 19, that's not 18, that's not 17. That is 20s and 30s before other numbers were in front of them. And here's what we, uh, it's also important to note that when we talk about these dates, you may see terms that look unfamiliar, like how many of you have seen somebody give a date and they put BCE or CE? Anybody seen this? Anybody been confused by that? So here's what it means. Uh, It used to be B.C., and we would always assume it meant what? Before Christ. And A.D. meant, it actually is Latin for in the year of our Lord, but yes, after death, it was what? Who cares what it really meant? We thought it meant after death, right? Um, Scholars have changed it to B.C.E. or C.E. Before the common era or the common era, when Christians get squirrely because they're taking our faith away, they can say before the Christian era or the Christian era, right? Depends. It's choose your own adventure on that. So that's the the dating system we use. So in the late 20s to early 30s, C.E. was the ministry, life, death of Jesus. That's when that happened. During that time... Israel, Palestine, was under occupation by the Roman Empire. Now, you have to understand that meant a whole lot because for about 100 years, from around the 160s BCE, the Jewish people had been dominated by one empire after another, and they had an empire over them called the Seleucids. They were Greek. And this one king, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, which means Antiochus, God made manifest the fourth, because there were three before him, um, when he is in charge, he wants to essentially wipe out everything that made Jewish identity unique. So he's trying to force them to consume pork and to abstain from circumcision and not to do their rituals and that sort of thing. Then there's this uprising led by a folk, group of folks called the Maccabees. Anybody heard of the Maccabees? Um, and they essentially defeat the Seleucids and they um, cleanse the temple. And there's a holiday around this called Hanukkah. So that, that's essentially the story of Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a festival, really, of, of liberation. How the, how the Jewish people who were smaller in number and were oppressed rose up and drove out their oppressors. And for ish 100 years, they lived in autonomy. They ran their own country. They, they took care of their own affairs. And then in the year 63 BCE, a, guy, a Roman general named Pompey rode into Jerusalem and said, that's over, you answer to us now. And Rome was the new kid on the block. They were the powerful empire on the rise. So when that happened, everyday life changed, but not as much as it would have in Jesus' lifetime. Because in the beginning, Rome used what they called client kings. How many of you have heard of Herod the Great? Anybody? King Herod, famous in the Gospels for the conversation with the Magi and the slaughter of the innocents. He ran, the, he was the king of the Jews, they called him. And at his death, there was an uprising. A guy named Judas led a rebellion. Um, they thought maybe he was the Messiah. He led a rebellion that eventually got put down. And by Jesus' day, they are being governed by Rome directly uh, in Jesus' time by a guy named Pontius Pilate, who eventually is the person who signed Jesus' death warrant. So that's how you got there. Now, in Jesus' day, there were still these memories of we were defeated by Babylon, we were taken into exile, we came back when the Persians led us, we rebuilt a 
temple. We rebuilt the city. We were building it all back. And we thought we were going to be free. And we thought God was going to come back to the temple and everything would go back to how it was before all the pain, all the suffering, all the loss. And now in Jesus' day, none of that has come to pass. And so people are wondering, if it didn't happen then, is God going to do it now? Will God deliver us? Is there going to be this divine intervention, big hand that swoops down and scatters the Romans and brings us to the place we want to be, which is governing ourselves free of outside interference and oppression? Now, that's not the only context for Jesus' life. Jesus lived in Second Temple Judaism, which is a very specific thing, and he had specific views on things, and all that matters. But Rome is sort of the backdrop on which everything is painted in Jesus' world. You, you can't understand the world of Jesus without understanding Roman oppression and the deep desire among the Jewish folks in Palestine in the first century to govern themselves without Roman interference, without outside interference. So that's Jesus' context. And so by the time we get to Mark's time, in Mark's time, we're talking around the year 70, um, give or take. Scholars date Mark anywhere from 66 or a little before to 73. Uh, we'll just split the difference and say around the year 70, Mark wrote. And what you have to understand is from the time before Jesus, from the turn of the millennium, you keep going and it, things keep getting more tense. There, there keeps becoming more pressure. Um, to quote a great American songwriter, they were living in a powder keg and giving off sparks. And if you know that song, everybody in here wants to go, I really need you tonight, right? Like we're all just right there feeling it together. And so by the time you get to Mark's world, there is a rebellion of the Jewish state against the Romans. And here's how it happened. Around the year 66, the Jews in Palestine revolted against Rome for several reasons. One is because they had, uh, Rome was governing them pretty oppressively. There were some religious tensions. The gap between the rich and the poor was growing exponentially, and the people were unable to take care of themselves. So you had like the 1% to 5% doing really, really well. And every, aren't you glad the world's so different? And then everybody else was essentially getting the scraps from the table. And then there was this anti-taxation protest that, that led to a reprisal by Rome. The Roman general or governor went into the Jewish temple and took all the temple treasury out. And that was the last straw and it ignited a war. If you want to read about this, if you're just like bored on a Saturday afternoon, it's rainy outside, you want to take a nap, here's how you do it. Look up Flavius Josephus. His friends called him Flava. <clears throat> Historically known, I'm not making this up. If they were really close friends, they just called him Flav. Wore a big clock around his neck. It was weird. Ahead of its time. Um, and so Josephus was a Jewish general in this war. But he gets captured by the Romans and suddenly decides he's no longer a rebel. He's pro-Roman. And not only is he pro-Roman, he thinks the Roman general Vespasian is the Messiah. And Vespasian actually ends up becoming, after Nero dies, he becomes the next Caesar. So it seems like Josephus is tapped into something here. And so Josephus is trying to be this bridge between the Romans and his Jewish siblings because there's all this bad blood that still existed. This is not the only rebellion that happened again in the second century. And so there's all this tension that still exists. And Josephus tries to tell the story. When Josephus recounts this rebellion, it is brutal. He describes mass crucifixions where they actually did not have enough crosses available to crucify the people they had to crucify. Just an absolute, destructive, terrible time. This war lasted from 66 to 73. But in the year 70, something cataclysmic happened. 
That is, the Romans broke through the wall of Jerusalem. They destroyed and razed the city, and they went to the temple, to the house of God, and they tore it down brick by brick, or stone by stone. Over in chapter 13 of Mark's gospel, the disciples are walking around wondering at the marvels of the temple, which apparently was a feat to behold. And Jesus says to them, not one stone will be left on another. Now, is Jesus reading tea leaves here, or is this something that is either about to happen or has just happened for Mark's community? The temple was destroyed. And for us, you think, oh, well, you know, I remember in 1984, it's one of my early memories, um, watching the, the church my grandfather pastored that we went to, the Free Will Baptist Church of Octavia. But if you live there, you call it Octavi, uh, Octavi Holler. Um, watching that church burn down. And I actually still have an ornament. It was at Christmas time. I still have an ornament that goes on my tree every year that was on the tree that we salvaged out of that. But I remember watching that burn down and it was awful and yet we just rebuilt. This is not that. This is the center of the world. The very spot where in their minds, heaven and earth collided. The place where God dwelled has been wiped out. Now, they didn't believe that you couldn't communicate with God outside of the temple. That's a Christian misnomer. They, they, of course, they pray, they, of course. But there's something deeply symbolic about the place where your God dwells, the place where you go to give gifts and offerings to your God being destroyed. This is not Rome simply beating Israel. This is the gods of Rome beating the God of Israel in the ancient world. Now, can you imagine what that felt like? This is why I said it's like 9-11 on steroids. Nobody walked away from 9-11 going, well, God's dead. I mean, maybe, they, maybe some people did, but that wasn't the overwhelming majority response. But what do you do when your God lives here and suddenly the, the people you thought your God would protect you from them and suddenly it's all been destroyed? It is very likely that Mark wrote in the, the rubble and dust of the world ending. Now you can say, well, the world didn't end. We're still here. Of course. But their world ended. A way of living ended. Their way of being religious ended. It changed everything. People are often really critical. Well, Jesus and Paul both thought the end was going to come in or near their lifetimes. They did. And they were right because they thought they lived in a moment where everything was about to change either for good or for bad. And unfortunately, it changed for the bad. And I think Mark wades into this disaster. And listen to how Mark starts his gospel. You're not gonna believe this. Like, uh, don't look at that. I wanna ask you a question. <laughs> If you were going to start a story in the rubble of the world ending, or your world ending, what would you begin with? Would you begin like this? Throw it back up there. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Mark, are you aware of what's going on in the world? Are you not paying attention? Your way of life your way of being faithful, religious, your way of being human, your friends and your neighbors, dead. The place where you went, because early Jesus followers still went to the temple. The place where the religious hub of your community, where you experience God in profound ways, gone. 
the world ended. And Mark begins with the beginning of the good news. Either Mark is completely oblivious and naive, or Mark was tapped into an understanding of the story of Jesus that he says, actually, maybe we need this story now more than ever. Maybe this story has good news even when everything is falling apart. This is what the Easter story is, right? Let me just jump ahead a little bit, but spoiler alert, if you don't know this story, I'm gonna ruin it for you. Um, Jesus dies in the end of this gospel in chapter 15. Does that sound like good news? The person that all this is built around, and, and you can make a case that it had to feel like a failure Right, Jesus is leading us. We're gonna resist the empire. We're gonna bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And then Jesus executed. His disciples bail. Good news. And then on Easter Sunday, we don't even get in Mark, we don't even get the risen Jesus. We get an empty tomb and a rumor. <laughs> good news. How in the world is any of this good news? It's sort of like this idea, like death can emerge from life, Really? Everything can fall apart and you can begin to pick things back up and put them back together in some sort of new way. Is anybody here like winter? Was anybody bummed? There was a chance this past week we were gonna get some snow. Like two weeks ago, they were teasing us like, get it ready. And then it just rained. Cold, muddy rain. Anybody like winter? I love winter until about mid-February. After our first good snow, and if you're watching online and you're wondering what is a good snow, about a dusting, that's about what we get. Um, after that first dusting of snow, okay, let's bring the spring back. But there's this rhythm to creation. Right now, you don't plant things in the ground now. It's dead, it's cold, it's hard. And yet spring is coming where the ground becomes life-giving again and everything changes. Mark is sitting in the mental, middle of winter looking at a seed catalog essentially saying, yeah, yeah, I know what it looks like, but trust me, there is something to this story that if we see it, if we hear it, if we open our hearts to it, even in the middle of the rubble of everything around us collapsing, we have the sense that there's still good news. Now let's talk about our context. How many of you have ever been told that the world is about to end? I remember my, my grandpa had this book that I inherited by a guy named Hal Lindsey. Anybody know Hal Lindsey? Okay, if you don't, don't Google that. It's not worth your time. Um, Hal Lindsey wrote a book, I think it was called Why Jesus is Coming Back, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. <clears throat> it did not happen, friends. Does um, anybody, how many of you were around for Y2K and you remember it? Oh my gosh, I was a freshman in college when Y2K happened. And I just knew because of everything, like this is tied up, like there's this biblical prophecy, like the computers are going, there's going to be bombs go off, everything, it's going to collapse. And we're at midnight. My church had a get together to like, I guess, welcome Jesus back, <laughs> uh, which involved singing karaoke. I don't know why, like, you imagine Jesus coming down and hearing us and going, no, that's not, they're not ready. I'm just, <laughs> no, not ready for this. Um, it's not a joyful noise. And, and just, this, just this idea that the world was like at midnight. On, now, what we didn't think about is like, it's gonna happen in Australia first. So we'd have a little time to prepare. We, time zones don't matter in the apocalypse, right? There's this, the world's gonna end and yet here we are. 
24, what year is it? My God, 24 years later, world didn't end. Computers still work. They're actually doing cooler stuff now. We're programming robots to come get us later. Um, <laughs> it's, what a time to be alive, really. I mean, um, it's because ending the world is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Are you with me? We decide it's going to end, and then we build bombs to do the job for us. Truth is, the world didn't end in 70 CE. It didn't end in 1988. It didn't end in 2000. It hasn't ended yet in 2004. Scientists say in billions and billions and billions of years, our sun will run out of energy, become, I think, I'm not a scientist, a red dwarf, swallow the planet. You won't be here for it. It'll be okay. We got time. Uh, Maybe. And yet, at the same time, we're facing our own set of challenges that feel a little cataclysmic. How many of you, when midnight happened and you realized it was 2024, you realized this is an election year, God help us. (laughs) Forget who wins. Just the fact that we have to go through it. (laughs) Just the, the trauma of all the ads and the hatefulness and the posts and all the garbage that surrounds it. And then who wins? It's a traumatic thing. How many of you, uh, I know you all were asking earlier, like, is everybody excited about the new year? No, not until I know what happens. I'll be excited about the new year, like December 31st, 2024. I'll look back and go, okay, maybe, maybe not. But we live in a time where it feels like that as a country, that we are afraid and breaking apart at the seams. And there's a lot of fear. We, We have an issue with gun violence that we're just not doing anything about. We're burying our heads in the sand. The gap between the rich and the poor is growing exponentially. Climate change is real. And even though the sun may not get us, the warming planet will if we don't do something significant to make changes. We're facing our own cultural Uh, species-wide threats. And then you narrow it all the way down to the personal. I bet some of you right now in this room are dealing with your own end-of-the-world feeling moments. The world didn't end for everybody else, but it feels like it might for you. Maybe you're here today and you're sifting through all the rubble, wondering, good news? What good news? How How can there be any Good news. And Mark has the gall and the audacity to say to us, sit back. I mean, can you imagine if we could time travel this guy, girl, person, human, bring them here, sit them down and say, Mark, here's what's going on in the world. What's your message for us? Oh, I've got a story for you. Here's the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ which is not about an evacuation from this planet, but about a healing and transformation of this planet and everything and everyone that's a part of it. And that, now what is that good news? I'm not going to tell you today. You have to come back next week, the week after that, and the week after that. But here's what I will do. So I remember as a kid, um, you know, I grieve for my children for lots of reasons, but one is Saturday morning cartoons don't exist anymore. Now I know you can stream whatever you want, whenever you want, but unless you were there in front of your TV, you had to stay close to change the channel because there were no remotes. You're right in front of your TV and it's Saturday morning. I can remember as a kid being so excited to get up on Saturday. It's a real different experience for me now, by the way. 
So excited to get up on Saturday and watch. And there was this thing that happened. There was this program that happened on Friday nights called TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. And they had this block of shows. How many of you remember? Okay, if you don't and you think this is just old people stuff, it is, let us enjoy it. Um, and so there's this block of programming, TGIF. And what would happen like around Labor Day, maybe a little after, they would do this thing on Friday night that was a preview of the fall cartoons, right? And so you would sit on Friday night. If you couldn't be there, you'd pop a VHS in, record it, watch it later, height of technology. And, and it would be this building anticipation. Y'all, the real Ghostbusters was where it was, is, and always will be at. And like they would preview what's, what, what new cartoons, what cartoons are returning. And I can remember my little, like just the anticipation. And what I hope we're doing today is not giving you everything, but it is just giving you the preview of what's coming which is the story of Jesus. If we're willing to open our minds for sure, but more so our hearts, the story of Jesus in the context we are in, Mark insists, can provide good news even when the world is in rubble around us. If we have eyes to see and if we have ears, to hear and if we have hearts that are open.